Today is January 15th, 2022, and today I'm turning 50 years old. I share a birthday with two great men, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who would be turning 93 this year, and Jean-Baptiste de Poquelin, known as Molière, who would be turning 400 this year. I am currently in the Kansas City metropolitan area and had been asked to participate in the great 400th birthday bash organized by Casey Molière and the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in honor of the playwright Molière. The celebrations have unfortunately been postponed due to the surging COVID concerns and restrictions. It would have been a great honor to have spoken at this celebration alongside the French ambassador to the U.S., Philippe Etienne, the mayor of Kansas City, Mayor Lucas, as well as the director and CEO of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, Julien Sugasagoitia, and the president of Casey Molière, Felicia Landre. The song lyrics, It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> you would cry too if it happened to you have come to mind a few times these past few days. But uh, being half a century old, I am too wise for tears. So I will try to make the best of it today. I had planned on bringing you interviews and live recordings from the birthday bash. But in view of the current situation, I have decided to air the lecture I held this past November at the Kansas City Museum. The lecture is entitled Molière and Me and aims to draw parallels between the playwright and myself and, of course, to uh, entertain while informing the audience about this great playwright's life and theater. If you get a chance, do check out the lecture on the Language and Culture with Dr. J YouTube channel. You will that way also enjoy all the beautiful costumes that I wore throughout my speech. For today's celebration, I had borrowed a 17th century gown and wig from the Kansas City Costume Company. With the event having been canceled, I have a beautiful gown and nowhere to go. So what's a girl to do? <laughs> well, there's always social media and I will be posting on all three of my accounts this time at DRJ Podcast, at Quadil, Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E, and at Kultureum or Culturium for all, C-U-L-T-U-R-E-U-M the number four, and then all. And now, on to the episode. So welcome to Molière and me. Before I begin, I'd like to tell you how this lecture came about and give thanks to the people who made it possible. So let's see. I have a podcast called Language and Culture with Dr. J, and we are actually recording this lecture for an episode of the podcast. Julian Sugasagoitia, the director of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, was a guest on this podcast, which led to further interviews and other cooperations, and it was Julian who put me in contact with Felicia Landre and Casey Molière. And I was delighted from the get-go. I was super excited about being able to contribute. When I was asked to lecture on Molière, my instinct was to do something scholarly, something academic, something that I would lecture on to my own students at the university. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought about what or how Molière would want to celebrate his upcoming birthday, I thought I, I had to do something more theatrical and something more dramatic. So we are here today in this beautiful mansion donated by the Long family. We are in the Kansas City Museum, thanks to Paul Gutierrez. Thank you very much. And what you see in front of you are me, Henriette Javarek Ponta. You see Momo representing Molière, 
Well, that's not fair. You didn't applaud me. <laughs> and we have Michelle Hamlet White, you're going to get applause too, a former Kansas principal dancer with the Kansas City Ballet. <laughs> and what else do you see? You see a bunch of clothes. So, <laughs> so what am I going to do? What, how, what are we going to try to attempt to do here tonight? I will try to tell you, of course, about Moliere, about his theater, about his personal life. I will try to draw parallels between Moliere's life and my own. Wait for it. Um, I will try to tell you about my personal experiences with some of Moliere's plays and I will try to bridge the 400 years, right, this gap between Moliere and us through costumes. I will try to show you a little bit the evolution of fashion from the 16th century, starting with his parents' generation, to our current days. All right. Everybody okay with that? Okay. Momo, you, you ready? You, you, all right, Momo's ready. Okay, all right, so to help me change, uh, transition in these, into these costumes, Michelle Hamlet-White has agreed graciously to be my dresser. Um, the costumes were provided by Kansas City Costume uh, in cooperation with Arts en Avant. Michelle is uh, the director of Arts en Avant. Um, there is one note that Kansas City Costume would like me to make. These are stage costumes. These are not museum pieces, so some of the zippers and buttons and such were not available, of course, in the at the time. So just they wanted to make sure that you know these are stage. This is stage costuming. All right, shall we get started? So, so to 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 speak about Molière at all, we have to situate him, right? We have to talk about the times that he was born into. So we're talking about Louis XIII, Louis the Thirteenth. We're talking about I'm sure you've heard of Cardinal Richelieu. We're talking about the the foundation, the formation of the Académie Française, right? So this is when all the rules for literature, uh, the arts. Uh, music are set, but also for theater. There were already these Aristotelian rules in place, but the Académie then continued on that and set these rules. For example, we have the, the three unities that I think some of you, I don't know what your background is, but I think some of you for sure know, right? The unity of time, place, and action. We have the set of five-act plays written in these beautiful Alexandrins, right? These 12-syllable verses that caused actors so much trouble in, pronoun in pronouncing the verses correctly. Uh, we have things like um, no violence displayed on stage, etc. right? So, so this, is, this is what we're, we're coming into. Okay, but I think I'm ready for my first costume. And I would start drawing some of these parallels that I promised you. So Michelle has a man's costume here for me. There we go. Beautiful garment here. Let me just change my mic once real quick. Okay. So this is a 16th century costume. Okay, so let's start with, with parallels, just some basic parallels between Moliere's life and mine. Well, the obvious parallel is that we share a birthday. Moliere was born on January 15th, 1622, and I was born on January 15th, 19... <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, the kids have been told to say that I'm turning 40 for the past 10 years. <laughs> the cat's out of the bag, right? I'm, I, okay, I'm turning 50 on January 15th, uh, 2022. Uh, <laughs> that deserves applause. 
All right, so other parallels. Hmm. Wilma, would you, would, you, would you show the audience your profile? And wait, 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 I, I will stand here with you. What, what do you notice that we have in common? That's right. Um, Moliere had a beautiful profile, as I do. And he was often called le nez, right? The nose. Thank you, Momo. Thank you. Thank you. Moliere was born into a bourgeois family. He was born in Paris. His father worked for the court of Louis XIII. His father was an upholsterer, right? So he was not, he wasn't born into the ruling noble class, but he was born into a wealthy family. So there's a parallel there, too. I was born in Kolojvar, Cluj, Romania, right? So the part of Transylvania of Romania that used to belong to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So I was born in Transylvania. Um, my parents, uh, who are sitting here in the front row, uh, were both educated, so I belong to the social class called intelligentsia, right? My father was the National Olympic weightlifting coach. So as Moliere's family had access to the king, my father had access to the dictator. So, <laughs> so bourgeois family. OK, another parallel, Momo. Um, Moliere was forced to study law. I was forced to study medicine. Neither one of us finished our degrees. So. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, okay, what else? what else? Oh, pseudonyms, right? So Moliere is a pseudonym. His real name is, can I, can I tell him? Okay. Jean-Baptiste de Poquelin, right? Jean-Baptiste de Poquelin dit Moliere. So he has a pseudonym. Why did he have a pseudonym? Well, this was to save his family embarrassment because back then, uh, theater was not regarded in such high esteem. Uh, you, you may know there were, for example, sometimes burial rites refused to actors. Actors were thought of as vagabonds, right? They were touring around. Uh, uh, performances were taking place outside, everywhere, right? It wasn't a, it wasn't a sort of a really respectable living. Right? Yeah, yeah. c'est la vie, hein? Enfin. Um, and I can relate to pseudonyms as well. I mean, I, I, you know, I come from a good family. I am a respectable member of society, of my community. I am the academic head of modern languages at, the, at a prestigious elite university, an université d'excellence in northern Germany. So I can't afford to write, for example, passionate, steamy love poems. Alors, parfois, je fais semblant d'être une petite Française hein, qui vit à Montmartre hein, et qui s'appelle Nira Nabro. Et voilà. So as Nira Nabro, it uh, gives me the liberty to write uh, passionate love poems. And I can't possibly publish a book called Farting in Public. <laughs> but Henry Hills can. So. And to discuss my Hungarian heritage with humor and sarcasm, I can't do that. But Anna Molnár can. Szép magyar név, Anna Molnár is kész, és úgy írunk. But what connects, what's the main parallel between Molière and me? And that is theater. So, Momo, Moliere broke off his studies in law and decided to uh, create his own troupe. Uh, he had the Illustre Théâtre, and they, they toured France, and they performed. They had quite a bit of success. Uh, they, they performed in the outside. There were some performances in theaters as well. Um, but, you know, back then especially, you had to have a patron, right? You had to have someone who reached under your wing and supported you in order to, to, to be successful. And they, they did not have that right away. Do you want to sort of pantomime what happened, Momo? Want to try? Give it a try. 
No, no, Momo, don't be silly now. No, that you didn't dance. Well, no. Should I just tell him? So the, the company wasn't that successful. So they, they, the company accrued so much debt that poor Momo was actually put into prison for it, right? And the company went back. I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, but he didn't, it didn't stop him. He went on and joined the Bejar, right? The, the another, another troupe of actors. And he had an amorous relationship with Madeleine Bejar. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> But it wasn't until Philippe de Conti discovered them and offered them his patronage, right? And it was a little bit later that true success came. And that came after an evening when the Troupe du Monsieur was performing a Pierre Corneille play. And afterwards, for a little bit of comic relief, for a little bit of light, uh, entertainment after a serious, heavy five-act play, they put on a farce written by Molière, and it's entitled Le Docteur Amoureux, The Amorous Doctor. And who was in the audience? Well, none other than Philippe and Louis. And this is Louis XIV, Louis XIV, and his brother. Uh, his brother Philippe becomes Duke d'Orléans. He reaches under Molière's wing, and the road to Versailles is already paved. So let's go a little bit into my connection to theater. My connection to theater comes from my paternal grandfather, who had a vineyard. And he could think of nothing better to do with his wine than to share it with the theater crowd. He had the actors, the ballet dancers, the singers. He had everybody in his cave, in his wine cellar. He loved to throw big cast parties. And as a result, we had, our family had a, well, box seats, if you will, first balcony always reserved at the National Hungarian Theater in Kolozsvár, Romania. And that's how I grew up. I remember uh, actors turning and singing some of their arias to our balcony in gratitude for the wine. I mean, you know, so, um, or, 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 or actresses reciting certain uh, uh, poems or, or things like that. I also remember being an extra, right? So I was allowed to be an extra in the little plays. My first play was Chismash Kondur, uh, Puss in Boots, and I was an extra in it. Uh, and that, that went on. I, I was in the school plays. I loved all of, the, all of the productions, and I loved working backstage, on stage, everywhere. Um, this continued six months after my family immigrated to Texas. I was already in a play. I could barely speak English, but I was in the play. Uh, my private school put on a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. It was Patience, and I was Lady Jane. <laughs> so. And then here, my family moved to Kansas City, and I went to Shawnee Mission West. And under the, the watchful eye of Seth McClintock, if some of you know, I acted in several, several of the plays. And that is how I met Felicia Landre. When I was 15, I was selected for a writer's workshop at UMKC, and Felicia was directing the workshop. So you, you might think, why didn't I study theater? Well, such frivolous, my, my mother's hiding. Um, such frivolous majors, you know, were not allowed for first-generation immigrant uh, only children, right? I'm an only child. So what did I study? I, uh, I did not finish medicine, but I did finish pre-med, uh, like a good girl. I did also finish human biology. My mother has it framed on her wall. It, she's very proud of it. It's, it's all good. I then did a, a, a BA in French and an MA in French literature. And then I circled around and came back to theater. I did a PhD in French, well, French theater on the sociological effects of theater on the community. So I analyzed the Avignon Theater Festival through Pierre Bourdieu's theories and circled back. And I spent all this time. Right? OK, 
But let's see, if, if we want to understand Momo truly, we have to now go move on to Louis XIV, because this is where his success came. And I would actually change into something worn in the 17th century, something that possibly Louis himself could have worn. I, I'm going to stick to a man's outfit still. You may take this wonderful hat. Thank you. Maybe Momo can hold it. <laughs> So with this costume, you will see that the hips and the legs are very much emphasized. You may know that Louis XIV was reputed for having beautiful legs, jambes, right? And he loved to perform and shake a leg, as they say. With this costume, you see the hips being incredibly emphasized. You see this, this is very hippie. In all my glory, right? Let me just get my... Oh, thank and I will now assume the fourth position. Let me tell you something. So, right, there was, there was the first position, right? There was second position. There was third position. And all this, all of us could have assumed. But the fourth position, oh, oh and Michelle's a dancer, so I better do this right. So the fourth position, that was reserved for loyalty, for royalty, loyalty, for royalty, for, for Louis, right? So, here we go. So let's start with Louis and this. And let me try to tell you about his times. So Louis XIII dies when Louis XIV is nine years old. He can't really take over ruling the country right away. Um, so his mother, Anne d'Autriche, Anne of Austria, and Cardinal Mazarin, Cardinal Richelieu is gone, Cardinal Mazarin is now in power. The two of them take over. It doesn't go that well, and there is a revolution, la fronde. And Louis kind of has to solve this. There's even, a, there's even a, a story about how the revolutionaries go to the castle and demand to see the ruler, demand to see the king and are led to this sleeping child, right? I mean, he was just a, he was just a, he was just a child still. Okay, so how does Louis deal with this? What are his tools? What, what tools that he, does he have at hand? Well, back in the 17th century, what was expected of a nobleman? He had to know how to horseback ride, he had to know how to fence, and he had to know how to dance. So Louis actually deals with it through dance. And let's go into that a tiny bit. He would have been taking dance classes from when he could walk, I mean, from before he could walk. Um, back in the 17th century, there, were, there was a lot less port au bras, right? So there was mainly this movement from the wrists. And there was a lot of leg movements. Maybe a moment, you, you want to demonstrate some of these moves? Oh. Showing off the legs again. Very nice legs, Mama. Oh, they're beautiful. Well, that, well, that, that's, that's more John Travolta. Let's stay with Louis. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so there are these ballets du cours that the noblemen are putting on that uh, politicians, diplomats are putting on. It's, it's a little bit strange, right? Because theater performing is not regarded in high esteem, but, but dance, this is something, this is a spectacle, this is something that has clear rules and can be performed by, by the nobility. So these ballets du cours were used to tell people about current events, to tell of the the diplomat or the politician or the ruling nobleman's uh, take on current events, his own personal wishes and political agendas. And I was trying to sort of relate this and I thought, is this a little bit like advertising today? Or is this like Instagram where they, you know, where these ballets du cours, like a good reel on, on Instagram? 
maybe. Maybe it's not a good parallel. Nonetheless, um, Louis was a master at this. And what does he do? He puts on the Ballet de la Nuit. And this is a series of performances. It lasts a whole week. It, it starts in the evening, and it, la it, it lasts until the morning, right? So, so this is this is grueling. You're, the, all the audience is standing and watching for hours and hours. And what happens at dawn? At dawn, Louis XIV emerges as the Sun King. He he comes as the light, right? He is divine power. He is the symbol. He comes from God. He comes with light, with the sun. Everything bad, all the negativity, the darkness is left behind, right? And he does this at age 14, successfully leading towards ending La Fronde. Okay, so how am I going to relate this to me? <laughs> All right, parallel to me, parallel to me. Hmm. Okay, okay, well, I can horseback ride. Not well, but I can. I was a fencer. I was a fencer from age seven until up to college. I, I you know, I, I'm a good fencer. I'm... I'm but I think the biggest one would be dance. I, I took dance lessons, uh, rhythmical gymnastics, ballet, jazz, modern, contemporary, everything. But I think maybe what you might enjoy is if I demonstrated a few Hungarian steps. I don't know if you're aware of the Hungarian chardash. So it goes, you know, the chardash goes twice to the right, twice to the left. And then there's a series of little turns that you can do here if you don't have a cable that you have to step over. In college, I, I, I picked up Latin dancing. I loved the samba, the cumbia, the merengue, the bachata, and I was the salsa queen. Oh, and then, oh, don't, I, and then I did voguing, you know? I did sort of voguing. And what else, how else can I relate this to me? Well, costumes, I've always been a fashionist. I've always loved costumes. And here I'd like to share a personal story with you. Mom and dad, don't listen. So one summer, my parents had sent me to study in Paris, and they gave me a budget for food, and I ate only baguettes with mustard, and I had a bottle of Centrum vitamins, just to make sure I had some vitamins too. So I spent at the end of the summer my entire food budget on a Jean-Paul Gaultier dress, you know, the one with the cones. So, um, okay, okay, so there we go. So, so I've related uh, <laughs> myself to Louis as well. And why was this important? Well, it's really important because this is uh, the times that Moliere came into, right? What Louis did with ballet and the Ballet de la Nuit and the, the Ballet du Cours um, was what Moliere was expected to do with his theater. Right? All right. I think I'm ready for another costume change. I think I'm ready for a lady's gown. So I'm going to stay with the 17th century, which is, of course, for us, the most important century. And I would like to tell you a little bit about Moliere's personal life. Thank you, mon chapeau. So Moliere married a lady named Armande Béjar. And as many things surrounding Molière, there's a controversy surrounding his marriage as well. Uh, namely, you recognize the last name already, Béjar. Um, Armand was much younger than Molière. Um, and the mauvaise langue, right, uh, those who wished him ill said or maintained that Armand was Madeleine's daughter, Remember how I told you that uh, Moliere had an amorous relationship with Madeleine? Well, this would have meant that he married his own daughter. Now, if you look at reliable sources, reliable sources dispute this. So the reliable sources say that Moliere married a younger woman who was Madeleine Béjard's younger sister. Be it as it may, Armand bore him three children, and Moliere lived to be 51 years old. I hope I don't have to draw a parallel there, but um, <laughs> that would be slightly macabre. Okay. Um, 
so again, legend has it, if you read up on Moliere's uh, death, some people say that he died on stage, right? What, what better way to die for a man who spent his life in theater than to die on stage? Again, if you look at reliable sources, they say that indeed he collapsed on stage, but the curtains were closed, he was taken home, and he did die at home. Also with the burial rites, his wife was uh, able to uh, to have proper, a proper burial for him. One interesting detail, perhaps, one very ironic detail, perhaps, is that the last play that he was in was his Le Malade Imaginaire, The Imaginary Invalid. Parallels to my personal life. Okay, so I'm married to a man who's a physician. He's an anesthesiologist and works at a major University Hospital in the north of Germany. We have three children, three children as well. We have 12-year-old twins who are sitting here in the front row and a little seven-year-old daughter. Okay, hopefully the 51 years old, not gonna be a parallel. But there is one parallel that I would share with you with the Malade Imaginaire. After the birth of our third child, I fell quite ill for quite a while. And nobody knew what was wrong with me. And most, I went to about 10, 15 doctors, thought I was a maladie imaginaire, uh, that there was nothing wrong with me, nothing could be found, until, alas, I was diagnosed and treated for cancer. So, but I did survive, so it is not my last performance. So. So that's what I wanted to tell you about the personal life, and that's what, I, that's what I selected this beautiful garment for. You see the feather and everything. But I don't want to change out of it yet, so I'm going to ask Momo if he would lead me up this beautiful staircase so you can all see the costume a little bit more. And I would give Michelle the microphone here. So, oh, Momo, this is a on for a tiny bit longer. Thank you, Momo. Um, and at this point, I'd like to go into Moliere's plays and tell you a about a couple of them. Actually, three, a few of them. Oh. So when I was trying to think of what plays to select, I, I, I thought about the plays that I've typically lectured on, Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, L'Avare, Le Misanthrope, L'École des Femmes, L'École uh, des, des Maris, Les Femmes Savantes, etc. So I thought, okay, do I, do I just, what, what do I do? Do I tell you how many of you are actually theater scholars or, or Moliere scholars? How many of you are going to enjoy this? And then I thought, okay, what, what are the performances that stick out in my mind? How do we remember art? How do we remember poems? How do we remember plays? And I think there's always a personal story to it, right? That's what makes it, that's what relates it to us, that's what really then sticks with our core. And I, I have to tell you about two performances that I, that I, that I've enjoyed so tremendously, and that's what I would like to kind of convey to you about Moliere as well. And one is seeing at the Opéra Garnier a ballet, uh, Giselle, by John Neumayer. And the story to it is what makes it so special for me is that I had no money. I was probably spending the money on, <laughs> on some sort of a dress, but, but uh, I, I had no money, and I uh, had zero visibility seats, right? So I was watching a ballet with, from, from no visibility, zero visibility seats. So I, I dressed, of course, nice. I still had high heel shoes on and, and, and a nice dress, and I, you know, I, I stood penché. I stood uh, behind the seat, not, so as not to disturb the person sitting in front of me, but I watched the entire performance in this position. And I'll never forget that, for example. Or other performances, I watched uh, Manon um, at the Opéra Bastille uh, with Renee Fleming in the re leading role. And I, the, the part that I will never forget is how after one of the arias, 
The entire Opéra Bastille stood up in applause, the entire standing ovation, and Rene Fleming stood center stage and conducted the audience. Just relished, just relished the applause. And this went on for minutes on end. It, I have never experienced anything like that. And the diva at center stage is saying, keep it going, keep it going. <laughs> and at one point, she made one gesture, she went, and in absolute unison, everybody sat down. And not one peep, not one cough, not just absolute silence. And I look over to my left, and I see I was directing a, uh, an exchange program to, for KU. And I had taken this group of 30 students. And I was already discovering Paris through this one student's eyes. He had 3% visibility only. And I was <laughs> experiencing museums and streets and architecture through his eyes already. And when I, this happens with Rene, I look over, and he's sitting next to me weeping, just weeping, completely overcome by, by this experience. And I, ah, I'm on the verge of tears for that. It's, it, that's, that's theater. That's performing arts. That's the, oh, the power of it all. I have goosebumps all over my, my, my arts. So that's what I would like to tell you about with Moliere as well, and I'll, I'll do my best. So I've selected three plays to do that. And I have to change out of this costume. I'll do one more bow and then I'll change. <laughs> so the first play is Tartuffe. And we're moving on in the evolution of costumes, right? So we were in the 17th century, and we're moving on to the 18th century, late 18th century, uh, almost beginning of 19th century. And to deal with Tartuffe, uh, what better costume than the Napoleonic era, right? Napoleon uh, crowned himself emperor, so some might have said he was an imposter. Tartuffe or the imposter. And let me just tell you about Tartuffe. I think most of you know the play, but let me tell you a little bit about it. So it is about a pious man who is not so pious. He's a fou de vous. <laughs> this is very <laughs> acrobatic. <laughs> so athletic. So he, t he pretends to be pious and religious, um, but indeed he is not. And he invades Orgon's family. Orgon and his, and his mother fall prey to this, but his wife and his daughter and son do not. Um, Tartuffe uh, stays with the family and goes on to try. Now I get my little Bo Peep hat and try and seduce um, the mother uh, while trying to marry the daughter, right? Um, and Orgon, the father, doesn't, doesn't notice this. He doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't at all realize what's happening. So, so his family plots to show uh, Orgon the evil ways of, of Tartuffe. And this is, I mean, this is, we're talking, you know, they're eavesdropping at doors, they're hiding under tables. This is sort of, you know, doors slamming, people come, a bit like sort of slapstick almost. So, Momo, you would have, you would have loved this, wouldn't you? You would, have, you would have loved this. Yeah, I know, I know. So, so um, the first attempts fail, and finally, 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 um, Orgon does uh, hear how Tartuffe is trying to seduce his wife, and he says, oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe I've been such a fool. But it doesn't end there, right? Because Tartuffe has something up his sleeve. He says, oh, I have these written documents from you that incriminate you. So too bad. I still get your family fortune. Too bad. And so what happens after that? Well, remember who <laughs> Moliere is writing the plays for? He's writing these plays for the court. He's writing these plays for Louis XIV. So what happens? Well, it's a term called deus ex machina, right? This, this divine power intervenes. And it is, it's never said that it's Louis XIV, but of course it is a messenger of Louis XIV that is sent to save the day, right? Because 
what is the image that Louis is portraying? He is omnipotent. He is powerful. He is right. He is divine. He is the one who knows when to come, and he will. As long as he's there, everything is okay. So he comes, uh, 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 and uh, well, he doesn't come, but his messenger comes and says, "Well, we've known about your evil ways, Tartuffe. You've done this several times. Off to prison with you." Right? Day is saved. So so far, so so good, but. It wasn't that easy for Tartuffe. It was a huge scandal. Uh, uh, religious groups uh, found it very offensive that that there was uh, re religion was made made fun of. That Tartuffe was a was a faux dévot. The play was banned for five years. Not even Louis could help Tartuffe. Uh, <laughs> Molière, sorry. Um, alas, after five years, after eighteen revisions, the play was finally put on and allowed. So why would I pick this play? I have a very personal story with Tartuffe. Uh, the very first time I read Tartuffe was, I was about 19 years old, and it was one of the first French classes that I had taken at KU. And my professor was Professor Alan Pascoe. And he, he was doing a general French lit class. And we talked about Tartuffe. Which is kind of surprising because Professor Pasco was a very, very, very religious man. And I, and I, when I was preparing for this lecture, I wanted to include this. After I found out what I found out, Professor Pasco was invited to this lecture. He, after this initial class, uh, a French lit class, I ended up taking a lot of classes from him. He was, in, in fact. Uh, one of, he was on my committee for my dissertation. We collaborated on a couple articles. So I would absolutely say that he was a mentor. He was invited to this uh, uh, lecture, and that is how I found out that he passed away three weeks ago. So when I found that out, I have to include a story about Professor Pasco, and it's a humorous story. So Professor Pasco is talking to us about Tartuffe, and we, we're reading Tartuffe with him. Non-majors, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And we get to a line that I will never forget, and it is, Ce n'est pas péché, madame, que péché en silence. Okay, so I don't know how many of you speak French, but there's the word péché from pêche, right? I knew this, pêche. Fish, right? So fish, la fish, right? And so I raise my hand and I say, well, excuse me, I don't understand this line. Why is it only to fish if you fish alone? And some of the other students are snickering and Professor Pasco looks sort of very uncomfortable. And, and I'm told, well, you know, there's, there's a difference of the accent aigu and the accent circon, uh, the circonflex, and it's a different word, right? Fish, fish. Two different words. One is fish, the other one is to sin. I'm, you know, 19, I'm very naive, and I still sort of insist on, well, I don't understand. Why is it to sin only to sin in silence? And it goes on and on, and, um, well, let's just say it means Tartuffe was trying to say this to Elmire because he's trying to tell her that she should have an affair with him because adultery is not a sin. It is only a sin to... Let's just say, self-please. And you can see why Professor Pasco felt so uncomfortable. And you can see why, with lines like that, the play might have been banned <laughs> for a few years. So I hope that you will never forget that line, right? That, that is a line that, that I will never forget. And I hope I could give you one personal story with that play. So before I go on to the next play and change out of this beautiful gown, I would like you to kind of notice how the lines have changed, right? So the corset is gone, the waist is loosened up, there's a lot more freedom, right? It's not tight. However, there's less fabric. We're, we're talking about revolutionary times, so, so there is a lot less fabric. Okay, Michelle, I think I would go on to the next gown. And these are just little tastes of fashion, so we're skipping now to the very early 20th century. These are heavy. <laughs> 
and with this, there were fainting couches, exactly. And with this gown, the reason I, I chose this gown was because, of course, in fashion, also in the United States, and one of the things that Casey Moliere does so wonderfully is to link France and French culture and Moliere to, to the United States as well. And fashion, the height of fashion in the United States as well, was French fashion. Fabrics were imported from France, hats, garments, such as this, would have been imported. Now you see that we're back into the restriction and the tight waists and the bosom being pushed up. I am not wearing a corset and I'm not wearing the hoops that would have been too difficult to change into, but that would, this dress would have, thank you, this dress would have been worn with, a, with an underskirt. And I'm gonna have to have Michelle tuck me in the front here for a second, excuse me. <laughs> it's as good as it gets. <laughs> and what play do you think I'll tell you about in this dress? Anybody wanna wager a guess? Well, it's actually my favorite play, and it's only a one-act play, and it's called Les Précieuses Ridicules. The reason I love this play is because I love putting it on with students. It's, it's easy to put on, right? Uh, it's, it's just a one-act, it's short, it offers, uh, you don't have to be a great actor to be, to be in it. Well, I think some people will disagree with that, but, uh, right, there's a lot of exaggerated movement, there's a lot of exaggerated costumes, and sort of, it's just funny and light, and I, I love putting it on with, with students. So let me tell you about the Précieuse Ridicule. So one-act play, what is it about? Um, well, let's start with the Précieuses, right? So who were the Précieuses? So la Préciosité was, was big in France, especially in Paris. And what is the, the, at the root of it? So you have these elegant salons and you have these elegant uh, communities and elegant ladies hosting these events. Um, and you're, you're not supposed to, to have vulgar language. You're supposed to have a delicate way of speaking. You're supposed to have delicate humor, very witty, right? It's, it's, it's just the sort of height of elegance and, and Parisian glamour, right? Um, and so what is, what is uh, the play about? It's about Madelon and Catos, two little country bumpkins who come to Paris in hopes of becoming précieuses. Bada-bing, that's pretty much it. Um, they, they, they come in the hopes of meeting a nobleman, a gentleman who will allow them to have this lifestyle. They do meet two such gentlemen, but being the little country bumpkins that they are, they do not recognize them as gentlemen and make fun of them, which irritates the two gentlemen who decide to take revenge on Madelon and Catos and send their valets, Mascari and Jodelet, to, to be these caricatures, right, who, who, who pretend to be noblemen, and the two ladies, of course, of course fall for it, right? Uh, Molière played uh, Mascari. Uh, he, he, he was perfect in the role in this, in this uh, exaggerated uh, uh, wannabe nobleman. And how does the play end? Well, uh, uh, the, the, the valets, the servants, uh, disclose themselves, and, the, and, and the young women are exposed and humiliated. So let's look at this just real quick from Molière's perspective. This is, again, Molière is walking the line. On the one hand, he's making fun of uh, country bumpkins, right? Of, of the of the of the plucan, if you if you speak French, right? The, the ones who lived in the countryside and didn't know the elevated, high fashion style and and ways of the of, of Paris. Um, on the other hand, he's making fun of the précieuses as well because they have these exaggerated manners that that make no sense, exact, etc. Um, but he's pleasing both, both audiences as well. He's saying to the, to the précieuse, well, see, no one can imitate you. Silly ladies who try to imitate you, they cannot. And he's still uh, walking the line by saying, well, these were just two silly women who did not manage, but it is something to be aspired for. Personal story with Les Précieuses Ridicules. There are two lines 
in the Precious Ridicule that I think are very memorable. And I will ask Momo to try and pantomime the meaning of these lines. Let's see if he manages. The first one, Momo, is Venez vite. Voiturez-nous les commodités de la conversation. I'll translate in a second. What do you think? You're going to eat something? No, try again. Venez vite, voiturez-nous les commodités de la conversation. Dancing, dancing, dancing. Ah, no, 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 no. Try one more time. You're looking at me? Hi. <laughs> so what did it mean? Come quickly. Come quickly. Voiturez-nous. Uh, car us, wheel us. The commodities of a conversation. What could this mean? Well, it was a precious way of saying, please bring us a chair, right? The commodities of a conversation were a chair, right? So, so let us converse, and it's a lot more commode, it's a lot more comfortable to sit in a chair as we speak. One more, one more, Momo. Um, there's another line, venez vite, they like to say, venez vite, it's always come quickly, right? Um, venez vite nous tendre dans le conseiller des grâces. You want him to help you? Oh, 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 oh. Oh, no, he's going to sleep. Oh, no, Momo! Momo, wake up! Okay, okay, okay. So, uh, in English, come quickly. Let us uh, hold or behold ourselves in the counselor of the graces. What is that going to mean? That's right, Momo, that's right, that's right. Let us look at ourselves in a mirror. The counselor of the graces. Am I graceful enough in a mirror? So it simply meant, let's look in a mirror. Thank you, Momo. So uh, I have to do a costume change again, but I'm not, I don't want to do it because I like these big gowns. So I'm going to let my father come up here. Uh, it's been a couple years since he's walked me down the aisle, and I don't see them. We are in Kansas City to be with my mother and father, so we don't see them often enough, so I'm going to let him share this with me. And I'm going to let you, Daddy, walk with me up and down. There we go. Take a walk. And come to the last play that I'd like to tell you about. And for that, I will transition into 20th century clothing here in the 1920s. And what play do you think I'll tell you about? It's going to be Don Juan. I'm going to be the little girl uh, and tell you about Don Juan. So Don Juan is a five-act play written in verse. It is <laughs> it tells the legend, legend of Don, Don Juan, Don Juan de Tenorillo. You might know him from Don Giovanni, right? So you know the legend already. And Moliere wrote his version in, in the play. It tells the story of the libertin, Don Juan, who seduces women indiscriminately. He seduces young ladies, old ladies, married ladies, religious ladies, peasant ladies, several ladies at the same time. There's, there's just no, and the dress is a tight fit, so. Oh, those darned boys at Kansas City costume. <laughs> they told me I should not eat for two days before I put this on. Oh. So I had to wear something under the, the, the clothes, so you have the pants under it, but sort of this is a nice little dress that you would have worn in the 1920s, possibly to the beach somewhere. There we go. And I've got a little hat. Right? Kind of a little flat dress. 
<laughs> but going on with, with uh, Don Juan. Don Juan has a, has a sort of a foil, some, uh, someone who, who represents the, quite the opposite of, of who he is. He is, like I said, a libertin. He's scared of nothing. He takes nothing seriously. He respects no one. Um, his valet, Ganarel, is afraid of everything. He's highly religious. He's highly superstitious. He's, he's afraid of everything. He's, right. So that's one thing. So what happens at the end of Don Juan is that Don Juan pushes it to such an extent that he, oh, he kills a commander, and then he's visited by the statue of this commander. And instead of sort of being visited by, you know, visiting by the ghost of someone you killed, he doesn't back off even then. He invites the commander to dinner. And that divine retribution ultimately uh, takes over. He is taken to hell by, by the commander. So that's the basic synopsis of, of Don Juan. And I'd like to tell you about my personal story with Don Juan. I've seen the play uh, with, the, with the Comédie Française as well several times. Uh, but I'd like to tell you about one that I saw in Avignon. So Avignon, if you, if you know, or if you, you might know, uh, there were seven popes that actually resided in Avignon. Uh, there is a beautiful papal palace that has a cour d'honneur in the middle. It's outside. It's an outside stage. Um, and uh, it, it hosts performances. And this is where I actually saw it. This was put on by the Comédie Française uh, under the direction of Jacques Lassalle. I don't know if you might know Jacques Lassalle. Anyway, Jacques Lassalle, when, when he put on this, uh, this particular production of Don Juan, took a few chances, took a few, uh, uh, made a, a few bold moves. He had in the company uh, for several years a Polish actor, for example, by the name of Andrzej Severin. And the, this, was a, this was a bold move because Andres Severin, uh, he's been in many uh, English-speaking play, uh, plays and movies. He speaks French perfectly, but has an accent. So, so you're, you have a Don Juan with an accent. But um, if, you, if you read interviews and, and uh, listen to interviews with Jacques Lassalle, he said he did this with, with, uh, on purpose. He wanted to still have a Don Juan that people could approach. He wanted to demystify Don Juan. He wanted to let him be, be real and approachable. And so he has this slight flaw, this slight accent when he speaks. And also, one of the things that he does in one of the very first scenes is he completely, and I thought this was befitting since I dressed and undressed in front of you this evening, um, he completely undresses Don Juan. So Don Juan is, is you know, they're, they're outside with Canarelle and they're in the forest and everything is taken off and his wig is taken off and his makeup is taken off and this was a conscious decision to try to show Don Juan at his purest. But that's not the reason I, I wanted to tell you about the play. I would like to tell you about one particular evening. So again, you know, as students would be, I, I always had sort of cheap tickets. I was always in the nosebleed seats. And, and sort of I'm up somewhere in the back uh, watching this performance. This is uh, July, late July, August. That's always the, the Festival de Théâtre d'Avignon is always in the summer for a month. Um, and I had the. I had the opportunity of spending seven years at the festival. It was, it was absolutely breathtaking, always uh, interviewing actors and directors and, and theater companies um, and, and, and participating in the in and the off festivals. And this, this was one of the summers that I was there. So it's in the summer, right, south of France, really warm. And what happens all of a sudden? The Mistral wind hits. And if you've ever experienced the Mistral, you know that within a few minutes, it can be really, really cold and unpleasant. So the Mistral hits. It's hailing. It's raining. There are winds coming in. It is freezing. And the better seats in the front, the audience starts leaving. The people from the back start pushing forward, and we're just kind of moving to the front. The performance already was quite complicated. So uh, and, and ambitious. This is an outside stage, so they actually had a river, so water on the stage. So, so already difficult to, to accomplish. They had an actual physical fire that Scanarelle and, and uh, Don Juan set. 
So now the Mistral comes in. <laughs> the water, this body of water that is on stage is everywhere. It is getting blown up and down and everywhere. The fire, things are catching on fire. It is going out of control. The actors are tapping this out. Um, at some point, someone comes on and says the actors have opted to go on. The play will go on. The show must go on. And again, this is one of those, just, just one of those moments, right? One of those experiences. So the play finishes. It continues. The actors were slipping. They, they couldn't be heard over the, over the noise of this storm. They were, it was really physically just... just <sighs> About 200 people remained. We were drenched. We were absolutely drenched, you know, sort of wet rats, but we're watching. And we're, we have stormed the stage. We're standing like at a rock concert. We are standing sort of right up against the stage. And then, of course, they, they finish the last scene. And every, it, it is, again, this, this union that you experience between the performance the performers and the, and the audience, this absolute real moment where, where there's a direct communication that takes place. To end the story, <laughs> I was so impressed. I was so, my poor parents, you know, they're, 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 I'm first generation immigrant. They were always giving me this money, sending me to France. And, you know, what was, was I doing? Was I buying dresses? And what did I do this summer? I sent a huge bouquet of flowers to Andrej Severin in thanks of sort of, you know, this, this magnificent performance. <laughs> he never wrote back, so, you know, so maybe he remembers. Okay, <laughs> so I've come to the end of this lecture, and I would like to change out of this costume to do my finishing, concluding remarks. Here, Momo. I, I don't know if you can wear a hat. But... Oh, there we go. There we... Oh, très chic. <laughs> so I hope, I hope I could entertain you. I hope I could maybe remind you, if you already knew, uh, of some of the aspects of Molière's theater and times, or teach you maybe one or two things. And I'd like to leave you now with, thanks, Michelle, with what's in store for Momo and me, right? So Moliere will continue to enchant audiences with his plays. I think his theater is timeless. It, is, um, it transcends cultures and languages. Um, and that's another place where I come in. I have recently received the budget that was approved for the university, so I will be teaching a project class on Moliere. And it is a class that will be taught in German, English, and French. So let me just kind of, it's a, it's a project class. Um, we will have, I will have students who only speak German in the class. I will have students who only speak French in the class. I will have students who only speak English in the class. And I will have students who speak two or more of the languages. We will perform and do readings of Molière's plays in retirement homes, at schools, and at, at various venues. And one of the accents is to uh, to show how he transcends language, how he transcends culture, how he transcends time. Because not only will we be trying to perform and, and read these plays in these different languages, but also we will have to ourselves communicate within our group, right? There will be students who do not speak the same language. We will have to communicate across, across uh, these languages. So that's one of the things that's coming up. Of course, Molière is turning 400 years old on January 15th, and he will be at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art celebrating his birthday with Casey Molière and a big bash. <laughs> and I will be there as well celebrating my uh, 40th birthday. <laughs> and looking very much uh, to, forward to participating in that as well. 
And one last, one, one last, last remark. So on January 15th, 2022, I will publish my first play, and I purposely waited until then. So it's the first play that I've actually finished, and I have another pseudonym, right? <laughs> it's Renee Caravage, and she's a diva. Um, and Caravage is just my maiden name backwards, Yavarek. And the play is entitled um, Joanne Thornton and Her Last Will. And it's a satire about retirement. <laughs> and that play I will publish on our joint birthday in honor of Maria. Thank you.